Uh, welcome everyone to our fourth installment of the 2019 Lenten Lecture Series on the Spiritual Masters, Great Spiritual Doctors of the Church. Now for our speaker, Elizabeth Kelly is Managing Editor of Logos, a Journal of Catholic Thought and Culture, and Adjunct Professor at the Center for Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas. She's a very popular speaker, retreat leader, and award-winning author, most recently for her book, Jesus Approaches, What Contemporary Women Can Learn About Healing, Freedom, and Joy from the Women of the New Testament. She also writes a regular column, Your Heart, His Home, which you may have seen in the Archdiocese newspaper, The Catholic Spirit. Ms. Kelly received her certification as a spiritual director from the Cynical of Our Lady of Divine Providence School of Spirituality in association with Franciscan University of Steubenville in 2015. Tonight, St. Agnes is honored to welcome her for the first time to present on the spirituality of the monumental Carmelite mystic, St. John of the Cross. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to begin this evening, and in keeping with the beautiful celebration of the Stations of the Cross, um, I thought, even though we've had an opening prayer, I thought I might uh, just recite for you uh, the shepherd poem. It's on the back of your sheet. I also want to bring your attention to, I brought a, a pile of St. John prayer cards. They've been blessed and they're up here at the front if afterwards you'd like to take one home. Uh, it's his, uh, his prayer of peace is on the back and it's uh, very beautiful. So we'll just begin with the shepherd poem. A lone young shepherd lived in pain, withdrawn from pleasure and contentment, his thoughts fixed on a shepherd girl, his heart an open wound with love. He weeps, but not from the wound of love. There's no pain in such affliction, even though the heart is pierced. He weeps in knowing he'd been forgotten. That one thought, his shining one has forgotten him, is such great pain that he bows to brutal handling in a foreign land, his heart an open wound with love. The shepherd says, I pity the one who draws herself back from my love and does not seek the joy of my presence. Though my heart is an open wound with love for her, after a long time, he climbed a tree and spread his shining arms and hung by them and died. His heart, an open wound with love. St. John of the Cross, pray for us. You know. I was first properly introduced to John when I was a grad student uh, studying at the Angelicum in Rome, and I took a course on John uh, with Father Paul Murray. I'm guessing there might be a few people in the room who have also taken courses with Father Paul Murray. Yeah, she's already like, I know he's so great. I, I'm not as going to be as good as he is, but I'll do my best. So, and since then I have taught John on a number of occasions in Catholic studies classes, but I want to be clear to say that I bear no special expertise with respect to John. Rather, I am a simple laywoman here before you who has had a real affection for John and I would say a much deeper encounter with Christ through his poetry. Hmm. 
And maybe that's helpful, because with John, you cannot skip the poetry. <laughs> We're tempted to go straight to the treatise, but we have to start with the poetry. The commentaries that he writes later on in his life on the poetry, and clearly they are master works, um, but they were written as a means of helping those he was ministering to, particularly the friars and the nuns, understand the mystical poetry that he had been given. But they were commissioned, essentially, requested. The poetry, on the other hand, <laughs> that was given and received. Mm. On many occasions, John asks uh, forgiveness for his commentaries. They are sometimes repetitive and circular, and they're certainly difficult. He recognized the limitations of these master works. But it makes it all the more curious that John never makes an excuse for his poetry. Hmm. Again, the commentaries were requested. The poetry, John understood to be pure gift from the Holy Spirit. Hmm. It's a very important distinction to take with you as you approach John. Now, poetry, it's the language of love. It's the language of people in love. You know, and John was crazy in love. He was desperately in love. And most of his poetry bears that kind of love language. He speaks of bride and bridegroom and with great passion about surrender and consummation and this sort of thing. So as remarkable as his commentaries are, we can't ignore the fact that his mystical poetry was not only inspired, but much of it was inspired, it was given during a time of tremendous physical and spiritual duress. You know, he was imprisoned by his confreres. And we might also guess that it was a mystical encounter that he may not have been able to have in any other way or at any other time. That is, in his physical imprisonment and torture, it paradoxically opens up a new interior freedom and an ecstasy. And it was the job, it was the vocation of the mystical poetry to capture this new interior freedom and ecstasy. You know, and this is not an uncommon paradox in the life of the soul and certainly uh, in the lives of the saints, but I think this might be the most important piece of all, especially as laypersons, it's, it's this. We do not simply read his poetry or reflect on it or analyze it or read all the wonderful secondary sources and there are many, Ian Matthew is among my favorite, Ruth Burroughs. We don't look at it just for its literary merit. Instead, I think we are meant to pray with it, to pray with his poetry, to rest with it in prayer, take it before the blessed sacrament in your holy hour. I think John might like that exercise very much. Hmm. But how does one just four feet 11, uh, raised in poverty by a widowed mother who struggled to care for her children, become a priest, a prisoner, a renowned spiritual director, and a mystical poet? <laughs> especially of his caliber, I think a few biographical notes are, are helpful. 
um, before really diving into the poetry. Despite his impoverished upbringing, John was exceptionally bright, and uh, he was formed by a very rigorous classical Jesuit education. And as a seminarian, he was exposed to all the great Latin works, the great Spanish writers. Um, he was inculcated in literary technique. And he was also very well educated in Aquinas, the Church Fathers, and above all, Holy Scripture. Uh, and he studied with some of the finest minds of the time that were available. The University of Salamanca, where he went, um, where he studied, it was ranked at that time among the finest universities, along with Oxford and Paris and Boulogne and, and some of the others. And of course, another of the great formative experiences of his life was his friendship with Teresa of Avila. And I'm sure you talked about that a little bit last, was it last week you did Teresa of Avila? Okay. You know, when they met, he was 25, she was 52. She was very impressed with him and she was kind of recruiting him to join this reform that she was undertaking. And he seemed immediately attracted to, almost to fall in love with the greater austerities that she was promising with the reform most especially a greater devotion to enclosure, silence, and prayer. Notice you don't need an iPhone for any of those events or any kind of technology. And as taken with Teresa and her reform as John was, you know, she was equally taken with him. Um, she once wrote, though he is small in stature, I believe he is great in God's eyes, you know. Uh, Karen Cavanaugh writes, John was speaking so knowingly and brilliantly about the wonders of God and the mysteries of divine goodness that the group began to refer to him as God's archives. <laughs> That's great. You know, and they had that kind of friendship, Teresa and John, where it was known on at least one occasion where they were both like taken up into an ecstatic um, moment of prayer just while they were sitting talking together talking about God you know falling into ecstasy together of course from a biographical standpoint John is probably best known for his imprisonment and his prison break <laughs> you know reform is often a sticky political wicket uh, and the Spanish reform of Carmel uh, in that century was no different and at one point, John was really seen as a threat. So he was taken prisoner. He was held for nine months. And during that time, he was not allowed to say mass or to receive the Blessed Sacrament. And he writes of this later as that being the worst torment, that he was not allowed to say mass or to receive the Blessed Sacrament. And he was locked in a cell with you know, barely enough space to move. There was just a little crack in, in the wall where he got a little bit of light. They gave him almost no food. You know. But of course, this is instructive to the soul, too, who encounters John. It was in this condition that he receives some of the greatest mystical poetry that the church has ever known. And he spent his time writing in his mind and memorizing the stanzas in his mind. And then one day, jailers changed. The next jailer was a little bit nicer than the previous jailer, and this one actually gave him some paper and something to write with. And so uh, he was actually able to begin writing down some of the poems that he was being given. Now, after nine months, 
John escapes. Now, it's quite a wonderful thing, don't you think? To think of a, a doctor of the church and a saint <laughs> planning his prison break. And it was about as typical as you could imagine, like a, a mini-series on television or something. He used, uh, he made a rope out of bed sheets, you know, and slung it over, you know. He loosened the, the hinges on the door when the jailer was away. And then at like 3 o'clock in the morning, he was able to push it open. He had loosened it enough. He pushes it open. He throws his rope out a window, and he, and he plops down onto the ground. Ha, ha, ha. But ironically, he landed in another monastery. <laughs> there was a Franciscan monastery just adjacent to the Carmelites. And so he found himself cloistered again. And yet, he was able to find some steps that led up a wall. And he was able to jump out and make his escape. And his first stop was with Teresa's nuns in Toledo. And the first thing he does when he arrives is to share his poetry with them. You know, he knew he had received something extraordinary. This was his Magnificat moment. This was, look what the Lord has done for me. Look at how he has blessed me. And among the poems written while in prison is The Dark Night. And we can turn our attention to that poem now. I'll just go ahead and, and read through it for you. It's, it's not too long. Uh, it's on the back of, is it on the front? It's the front of your sheet. Didn't the handouts turn out pretty? I love that image of John. Uh, <clears throat> One dark night fired with love's urgent longings. Ah, the sheer grace. I went out unseen, my house being now all stilled, in darkness and secure by the secret ladder disguised. Ah, the sheer grace. In darkness and concealment, my house being now all stilled. On that glad night in secret, for no one saw me, nor did I look at anything with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart. This guided me, more surely than the light of noon, to where he was awaiting me, him I knew so well, there in a place where no one appeared. O oh, guiding night, O oh, night more lovely than the dawn, O oh, night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. Upon my flowering breast, which I kept holy, for him alone. There he lay sleeping, and I caressing him there in a breeze from the fanning cedars. And when the breeze blew from the turret, as I parted his hair, it wounded my neck with its gentle hand, suspending all my senses. I abandoned and forgot myself. Laying my face on my beloved, all things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. You want to say amen after that, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Darkness, concealment, unseen, forgotten, abandoned. These ideas were like air to John, <laughs> like water and sunlight and everything that's most necessary to life and to the spiritual life. You know, here we are sitting in the basement of a church, 
we might be tempted to turn our gaze heavenward and say, Lord, you know, where is your mercy in hiding? I'd much prefer to find that which I seek. Thank you very much. You know, but John asks us instead to find in this hidden God, veiled in night, a deep and a secret delight, a holy kind of joy. John has fallen in love with the Lord who hides, not in cruelty, but so that we might seek him more. And we have to pay attention to the nature of this God in hiding. He hides not so much from us, but with us and for us and in us. Hmm. John exhorts us again and again to seek our Lord in all of his holy hiding places. Where does he hide? He hides in our hope. He hides in the Holy Eucharist. Hmm. He hides in the eternity that's written across every heart of man as Ecclesiastes speaks of it. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom it. Hmm. He hides in our souls and in the deep and mysterious suffering of night. But what John promises is this. In seeking a hidden Lord, we will discover that we must become hidden too. Hidden in him like protected treasure. And if John receives criticism, it's sometimes in this vein. You know, the, the path he invites us to, this via negativa, the apophatic, the, uh, all this. You know, is, is this only for a select few? Or is this the gospel path for all? Uh, is this invitation for all? But I can tell you, I can think of a few, few other messages that our social media, Facebooked, Google, Twitter, Instagram, did I miss any of them? Um, world could need more hmm? to hide in a God in hiding. How contrary that is to the push, the wave, the tsunami of social media. You know, and in this way, I think John is truly a saint for our time, and his invitation into hiddenness, it's a balm in the social media desert. But I want to make one important kind of overarching observation, and that is this. We have to take note that John initially uses poetry to express this hidden aspect, this hidden nature of God. Uh, poet and priest Michael McCarthy, he says, the first thing about poetry is that everything does not have to be said. Mm. Its discipline has to do with understatement and evocation. Ooh. Understatement and evocation. Mm. Those are almost looked upon as weaknesses in our culture. He, he might well have been writing about the dark night, you know, or any aspect of the spiritual journey. That is, there's a quality about such things which cannot be captured neatly, tidily, entirely. You know, that John has been given verses, poetry, and only later is he given the tomes, the treatises. 
you know, and even those, specifically on request. It's significant. John's poetry hints at a Lord who at times is marvelously subtle hmm. and always paradoxical, <laughs> it seems. You know, consider that while in prison, having been denied every possible human comfort, even the light of day, perhaps even divine consolations, at least that we know of, John wasn't inspired to write a treatise or an examination on suffering. Instead, his ruined body, his ravished heart, was enwrapped with mystical verse <laughs> and love language at that, you know. You know, and poetry, like any of the arts, it's an effective vehicle for a hidden god, a god in hiding, precisely because of this evocative nature. Uh, Daniel O'Leary, he says, all our descriptions of God will, for, will forever be well wide of the mark. Amen. You know, uh, Newman said, our human language is always going to be limited. It's always going to fail. You know, maybe the best that we can hope for on this side of eternity, you know, even with a good deal of inspiration from the Holy Spirit, is, is this understatement, this evocation. Hmm. Another, R.S. Thomas says it beautifully this way. He says, think of the eloquence of the unsaid thing. Hmm. The nobility of the deed not performed, the significance of an absence. Mm. Now there is magnificent, mysterious, spiritual poise in a God who hides. And in hiding, he betrays what? This tremendous hope in us. A tremendous hope in his children that we will seek that we will look, that we will long for and find him. And poetry is one of the ways that John was first given to express this kind of hopeful hidden journey. And it's one of the ways that he first sought and found a hidden God. But exactly, where does one begin to look for a God in hiding? Now, John exhorts the beginner on the spiritual journey. He says, first search for God within. Hmm. He says, God is hidden in the soul. Hidden in the soul. And there, the good contemplative must seek him with love. He continues, you yourself are his dwelling and his secret inner room and hiding place. Desire him there. Adore him there. Do not go pursuit of him outside of yourself. Which sounds kind of nice. It's efficient. <laughs> I don't even have to leave my room. <laughs> you know. But then he adds, there is but one difficulty. <laughs> Even though he does abide within you, he is hidden. Thanks, John. He says, even in searching and finding God within, he's always going to remain mysterious. He's always going to remain paradoxically in hiding. But John is very keen to make this point that this hiding is always to our benefit, to our good. Mm. Now, how can that be? 
you know, in the dark night, the poem that we read just a moment ago, the adventure of love begins unseen, in darkness and secure. There's an escape forged on secret ladders, hidden ladders. You know, lovers are uniting under the cover of darkness and concealment. And this hidden quality, it's not evocative of shame, but rather protection, spiritual privacy. It speaks of an intimacy that is so holy, that is so sacred, it requires secure darkness in order to experience it fully. John says, even though this happy night darkens the spirit, it does so only to impart light concerning all things. So where there is darkness, it's only so that we can bring about light. There's deprivation, only so that there can be satiation. And it's a hiddenness which protects. This is a longer quote from John. He says, the soul is well hidden and protected in this dark water, for it is close to God. Hmm. Since the dark water serves God himself as a tabernacle and dwelling place, it will serve the soul in this way, and also as a perfect safeguard and security, even though it causes darkness. In this darkness, he says, the soul is hidden and protected from itself and the harm of creatures. Now, what does all of this mean? The hiddenness, the darkness protects us from ourselves first and foremost because my senses, my sin, it's always pressing in. It's always demanding attention. It always wants to spread itself over everything. And the dark night of the senses protects us from this invasion of sin and of sense. John says it this way. He says, this is a work of mercy to leave one without understanding. Mm. That's a tough grace, isn't it? <laughs> he says, hide in the secret inner room of your spirit, remaining hidden with him. You will experience him in hiding. That is, in a way, transcending all language and feeling. Strive to be really hidden with him, and you will embrace him within you and experience him with loving affection. So even if we don't know it, even if we cannot see it, do not feel it. John frequently describes the operations of the Holy Spirit in the person as hidden, as unknown even to the person themselves. He says, it's like the air that escapes when one tries to grasp it in one's hands. Hmm. He says, this food is secret and hidden from the very one who receives it. Hmm. Ruth Burroughs, a great Carmelite, read anything of hers and it will benefit you, I'm sure. She says, God is not an object and therefore lies totally outside the range of our thinking, imagining, loving. One of the implications of his hiddenness is that he cannot be held, looked at, loved, enjoyed directly in this life. He is in all, and things are only because of his self-communication to them. It becomes a matter of, of, of continually availing ourselves to the hidden gifts of God and to a hidden God. 
again, it, it's the very fact of the hidden quality of the, of the Eucharist that, that for John, paradoxically, it, it creates also the most potential for our union. Hmm. The sensory benefits are, are the least among those that this most blessed sacrament bestows, he says, for the invisible grace it gives is a greater blessing. God will often withdraw sensory delight and pleasure so that souls might set the eyes of faith on this invisible grace. It's like a huge camp for trust. It's like a huge workout routine for trust and for hope. And it's important to consider other possible meanings for hidden, you know, a primary one being mystery. Mystery. You see hidden, 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 hidden in so much of John's work. One of those meanings means mystery. Uh, Ian Matthew, another one you shouldn't miss. The impact of God. The impact of God by Ian Matthew it is magnificent secondary source for John. He says that in speaking of two common phrases in John's work, that is contemplation and dark night, he says, both speak of development in a person's relationship with God, particularly in prayer. And while that can sound abstruse, he says, they in fact convey mystery. I love this line. I wish I wrote it, but I didn't. Ian Matthew did. They are really names for letting God be who he is. We have no choice but to let God be who he is. He is a being beyond us. And John says, however much the soul hides herself, she's never in this mortal life going to attain a perfect knowledge of these mysteries as we will in the next, you know. You know, our spiritual avarice, you know, we want to reach up and just rip God right out of his hiding places. <laughs> we want him to appear, darn it, you know. But alas, in this life, even in the blessed sacrament, he shall remain hidden. And we need to pray for the grace to hide right along with him. Pull yourself out of the social media storm and hide, hide, hide. In the bosom of our beloved, this is John's phrase, in that space where things are better left eloquently and evocatively unsaid. Hmm. Now, for all of this seeking a hidden God, you know, John of the Cross writes from a very deep faith, of course, that it's God who's seeking us first. <laughs> we can have tremendous confidence and peace in that. And he seeks us without limit, without stopping, without ceasing. He seeks us all the way to the bitter end, the cross, the darkened tomb, the sepulcher. While a silent heaven, <laughs> full of poise, looks down upon all of this, seeking. Still, he's not John of the God who seeks us. He's John of the cross, you know. How is it that one who has fallen so deeply in love with the cross, this sort of unspeakable moment of abandonment, also seems to know intimately 
uh, this seeking God, this God who is after him. Um, and John probably doesn't need any outside support here, but I'm, I'm going to take a minute just to borrow from another one of my favorites, Carol Hauslander, uh, who is deeply formed by John of the Cross. And I like the way she says it. She says, Christ seems to have fallen in love with our suffering. Mm. But it was not with our suffering that Christ fell in love, but with us. He identified himself so wholly with our suffering because our lives are necessarily made up of it. It is the inescapable consequence of sin. No one can escape it. Everyone must somehow either make friends with suffering or be broken by it. No one can come close to another, let alone love him without coming close to his suffering. Hmm. And it's precisely in this way that John is first convinced that God is a seeker, that God seeks us. Jesus came to us, broke in on human history, that he might take on our suffering. You're, you're probably all Latinists in the room. This is the St. Agnes crowd after a while. So <laughs> compassion, the Latin for compassion is two words, cum patior which means essentially to share with, to stand with, to enter deeply with. Christ takes on human nature in supreme compassion so that he could stand with me, enter into my experience, my sufferings, and my joys. He came close to us by coming close to our suffering, all suffering, so close that he took it all on, took it in himself. I think sometimes we think we're compassionate when we write the check and we send it off the mail. You know, I don't want the orphan to suffer. I don't want the starving to suffer. I don't want the homeless to suffer. But to share with, to stand deeply with, to enter deeply into their experience, that's a compassion that really calls for sacrifice. I'm not sure I like that kind. But Jesus did. That's what he did. He enters into, stands with, shares deeply with. And we're invited into this, this night of purgation. It's perhaps the most enduring sign of all to John that God is deeply in love with us and that he seeks us without ceasing. He says, if anyone is seeking God, the beloved is seeking that person much more. Hmm. And if a soul directs to God its loving desires, which are as fragrant to him as the pillar of smoke rising from the aromatic spices of myrrh and incense. John was a romantic. I love that. He says, God sends it the fragrance of his ointments by which he draws it and makes it run after him. And these are his divine inspirations and touches the desire for himself that God grants in all his favors and fragrant anointings. He says all of this is preparation for eternity, all of its preparation, and for the transformation of our faculties. He says God is the principal agent. He acts as guide of the blind, leading them by hand to the place they know not how to reach. Mm. Again, in Matthew, he reminds us the dark night, this 
magnificent poem. It begins, one dark night I went out. There's immediate movement. This is a journey that we're on. This isn't stagnant. This is active. He says, one dark night I went out. This is the first th thing that John is proposing, and that is a purpose. That night means that time doesn't just meander. It's not just random. That it's a journey to the Father. Hmm. It has focus. It has purpose. The Father is seeking us. The Father is drawing us into this journey. And one of the places that he invites us to know him is in the sanctuary of his suffering. This is one of the great invitations of Lent, to come and keep Jesus company in his suffering. And, and John knew this. He lived this so beautifully. He seeks us in our suffering by offering us his. Houselander says, uh, describes it this way. She says, it's a kind of aching wound, but the thing is that I go to it as to a lover's meeting. <laughs> Just because it's like that, I have drawn the crucifix, and now I know I shall draw it on myself. John would have loved that notion of drawing the crucifix on oneself. You know, and we need to be cautious. We don't want to sentimentalize suffering. It can deform, especially when it is existing outside of the sacraments and sacramental reality. Suffering can be very deformative and crushing. And I think that this is why John is so careful to emphasize uh, our preparation for entering into suffering, that it can bring bitterness or it can bring joy, but not the world's joy. You know, again, we need caution and definition when examining just how it is that God seeks us. We need to remember that the joy of heaven is not the same thing as the world's joy. God's joy isn't all smiles. It doesn't grin. It hasn't had its teeth bleached. <laughs> you know, it burns. It's a burning kind of sensation. It burns from the center of one's being, and it aches all the way straight through to the core of eternity, into the very heart of God. We don't want to confuse it with ease or pleasure, even in our prayer, or consolation, even in our prayer. But we want to recognize that this kind of joy, God's joy, is paradoxically as the same lineage as suffering. It's of the same lineage. It has the same funny family tree, joy and suffering. And John understood that. He really understood it so well that he climbed right up upon that tree. <laughs> Just like his forlorn shepherd, and he found there a groove that was already well-worn and awaiting his form. He had drawn the cross upon himself because the cross had drawn him to it. Uh, let's see. He was very fond of drawing crosses. And um, I've given you a picture of one that he has drawn on the back of your uh, handout. 
that's another something to take with you into adoration. You know, you know he seems almost, John seems almost like obsessed with this hovering place of like Good Friday. <laughs> you know, this darkness and death and Of course, as you're looking at this sketch, what's one of the first things that you notice is its perspective. Hmm? It becomes almost the focal point of the entire image. You know, I think we sometimes want to imagine that somehow God the Father was absent from the crucifixion, but John's image instead clearly demonstrates a father very much with full view. Hmm. You know, he wasn't up in heaven slapping his forehead saying, oh, sorry, kid, I didn't see that coming. I can't do anything about it. Um, <clears throat> so when we look at this image of St. John of the Cross's crucifixion, what are we seeing? Is this God's absence? His neglect? You know, our spiritual instincts want to say, no, 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 God isn't cruel, he doesn't abandon, he doesn't neglect. But if it's not those things, what is it? Hmm. And I wonder if John wouldn't describe it as a kind of perfect spiritual poise. That is, capturing the precise moment that the Father must have wished to reach down and save and rescue, yet did not. You know, I wonder if he wouldn't suggest that this is precisely the moment that the father hopes the most in his son. Hmm. Remember, he's hidden in our hope. <laughs> we don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that John's work reminds us to, and, and I would love to go through the rest of the poems, but we just don't have time. But that the soul, though it starts out one dark night, he is met. The soul is met. There is union. There is finding. And he was waiting. He was there waiting for him. O oh, night that has united the lover with his beloved, there was a laying my face on my beloved, all things ceased. I went out for myself, leaving my care, forgotten among the lilies. John's great faith is exposed again and again in this sweet breathing of the Holy Spirit. The gentleness, the lovingness, this firm conviction that you are being guided toward him. I'll, I'll close with this one idea. In Matthew writes that John's poems were not just born of genius, but of encounter. Encounter with Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, and he has a line from, uh, I think it's the spiritual canticle in chapter 14. And, and it exposes John's great and gentle genius as a spiritual director. And it wasn't just the nuns and the friars. There were many lay people who had come and knock on the door of the monastery, uh, hoping to seek his spiritual guidance, which I think is quite interesting and quite telling. And he understands that ultimately, the relationship between God and man is largely a private interior exchange and words will fail. 
and, and he's writing of his poetry. He says, these stanzas were composed in a love flowing from abundant mystical understanding. I cannot explain them adequately, nor is it my intention to do so. He said, I only wish to shed some general light. It is better to explain the utterances of love in their broadest sense so that each one may derive profit from them according to the mode and capacity of one's own spirit. He says, there's no reason to be bound by my explanation. This is John speaking about his treatise. He says, for mystical wisdom, which comes through love, need not be understood distinctly in order to cause love and affection in the soul. So what's he saying? Every person's relationship with the Holy Spirit is going to be unique and unrepeatable and in some ways inexpressible. Inexpressible. You know, readers can relax into that tremendous freedom that John has just bestowed. You know, particularly to beginners, particularly to those who are striving to deepen their prayer life. You know, he possessed not just this radical willingness to enter into the dark night of privation, but he also possessed a radical respect for the individual encounter with Christ. And I think that that would be one of his words to us tonight in this spirit that you take the poems with you into adoration, these and others that he's written and await that individual encounter with Christ. So I, I shed a little general light on a few little trinkets of John. It, certainly you could spend an entire lifetime studying him and there are those who have, like Ruth Burroughs, like Ian Matthew and others, and seek them out uh, for additional guidance. But uh, at this point I would welcome any questions or Oh, I cleared John all up. That's great. <laughs> I feel wonderful. <laughs> Any comments or questions? But the poetry is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, just it's just gorgeous. It washes over you. Yes, sir, in the orange shirt. I will, uh, I, we're reading that as your group, uh, Dark Night of the Soul, in commentary. Mm -hmm. But in there, he makes it very clear that even amongst the adept, very few get to experience what he experienced. Mm -hmm. You paint a very different picture tonight of, uh, compared to what you read in The Dark Night, where you, know, you paint a picture of one where everyone's invited, and he, he paints a picture, it seems to me, that says many go on the quest, but very few ever uh, achieve the end of the, the quest. So you're reading The Dark Knight with a group and um, it seems in The Dark Knight he's clear to say though many will enter this quest not all are going to bring it to the same kind of fruition that he did yeah. have the same experience that he did well that's true <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you notice I mean, how much time did your group spend with the poetry? How much time did your group spend praying with the poetry before you entered into the treatise? I'm just curious. This isn't a, a, a hmm. Yeah, interesting. You know, again, my, if I could offer one thing about John and study the treatise 
It's a masterwork. It's fine. Start with the poetry. Pray with the poetry. And I think that is where the Holy Spirit enters into and gives each their own individual and radical encounter. Does that make sense? But you're right. He does say that. And he, but he's also very clear to say everybody's different. Um, everybody's going to experience the Holy Spirit in different ways. And yes, I do think that the degree to which he experienced this mystical dark night is rare. Very rare. Hmm. Other questions or yes, ma'am. What, what years was he writing? What years was he writing? I think he wrote. Uh, he was in prison in fifteen. Let me just look it up. I'm really bad with with things like that, so you have to forgive me. I think he died in like fifteen ninety two. And I think he was imprisoned in 1578, if I'm not mistaken. Let me just take a peek. Yes, 1578, he was in prison, and he died in 1592. Way to go, brain. <laughs> I'm psyched. I remembered that. Other questions? Yes? So you talked a lot about going inward. Yes. How do you balance that with the same call to go out of ourselves into a bit? <laughs> I think that's a great question for all of the cloistered. I think, like, John Paul would argue that the cloistered are actually more a part of society than we are. Because they, uh, they are the bridge. They've already got sort of one foot in eternity. They're kind of bringing the earth along with them in their prayer and in their life. So um, I don't necessarily believe that to go in means to leave the world. I'm, I think it, he's inviting us to encounter it in a different way. And in a very real way versus the pseudo way of all the sort of distractions that are around us. Uh, but again, this is a great paradox. All of the mystics speak of it. All of the great contemplatives write about that. But I remember John Paul II saying something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, it's like the cloister keeps the world going round. And, and it was basically their prayer, their entering into uh, the human experience in a much more profound way than, than even we do. I don't know if that helps. Makes you want to run to the cloister. Yeah. <laughs> Ian Matthew, the impact of God. Ian Matthew, I-A-I-N, Matthew, traditional spelling, the impact of God. Yeah, not to be missed. Beautiful book. Any other comments, questions? I've got a question. Yes? Maybe you touched on this a little bit through another question, but I am curious about how a person today can actually hide themselves with God. <laughs> how can a person today actually hide themselves with God? Um, 
what did you say? Throw away your technology. Throw away your technology. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big, don't have cable and don't have, you know, I, I don't have a smartphone. I have a very dumb, 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 dumb phone. You know, I, I held it up at the wine conference and Kelly Walquist, who's just so funny, she looked at it and she said, is that a rotary? You know, <laughs> I'm like, practically, you know. The next step is carrier pigeon, you know. <laughs> but think about this, think about this. Not one, not one saint, doctor of the church, not one of the great mystics or poets or writers or thinkers or philosophers of theologians, not one had the internet or an iPod or anything like it. Now, you know, I mean, yeah, somebody's clapping. Yeah, I mean, technology is wonderful, believe me. You know, a lot of you know I have MS and it's like one day I'll be in my walker and I'll be so glad to have it. You know, I'm, I'm totally a pro uh, a proper use of technology, but um, I do think that there's a way that you can take a step into that hidden posture. It's not just for a moment or for a minute, though those are good things to do. Go to adoration and hide out. Uh, but it's really more of a life posture of, of, of hiding God in every moment. And I think that um, stripping away some of the superficialities, whatever they are for you, is one step. And once you take that step, then God reveals another to you. And then another to you. And then you can find that you're walking through the world sort of hidden with him. You know, it's a muscle, it's a spiritual muscle you have to work out like any other muscle. You know, you gotta get good at it. And it, and it takes some time. You know, when I first got rid of my TV, I was 28 or so. And, you know, after about two weeks, I never wanted the thing back in my house because of the peace that descended, the clarity of thought that came, the, you know, just all of that. Um, but that one little step then led to another and led to another and led to another. And now, you know, I'm 52, all these years later, I, I'm starting to get the hang of it. You know, but it takes time. It takes time. And more than anything, you present that question in prayer to the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, how do you want me to hide with you? Yeah, you wait and see what he says. I was wondering about... Yeah. Um, so uh, Father uh, Reginald Pierre de Lagrange mm -hmm. is famous for his uniting, if you will, mm -hmm. who was already united, but John of the Cross and St. Thomas Aquinas, the great mystic and the great mind, you know, and, and kind of uniting those two, yeah. the paradox with the, the, the yeah. rational um, you know, clarity. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was interested in, I, did, I actually didn't know this about John, that he, he had studied Aquinas. Yes, and so as a seminarian, he taught, he helped to teach it, uh, and was like a TA version at university on a class on Aquinas. I'm sorry, go ahead. So I was just wondering how that maybe influenced him in, in, in any way. Oh, I'm sure that it did. Um, I mean, especially in that era. Uh, but I think John would say, and and the the real experts on him, the real scholars on him would all say, 
he was first and most and last about scripture. That was the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing. So anything that Aquinas added was really about the commentary on the scripture. I think that was the, the thing that captured him most. Um, but again, this is an area I have studied in great detail, but I do know he was fond of Aquinas. And it would make sense, you know, the formation of his mind would lead to a greater formation of soul. Yes? I was just going to comment that aren't we all called to vocal prayer within the liturgy and otherwise, but also to meditative prayer, which is really that going inward into our souls into yeah. our, and trying to meet God there? So the question is, aren't we called both to vocal and meditative prayer? Yeah, I think so. It's kind of like Mary and Martha. You know, Mary and Martha aren't two women. They're one woman. You know, Mary and Martha is one woman. It's like, how do we remain always aware that we are in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, and how do we serve? You know. So yeah, I do. And I think that there's been a great loss for contemplative prayer, for even meditation, because our society has made this weird shift into um, extroversion as being the preferred method of being in the world. You get so many, you ever go to a doctor, you're gonna get 10,000 like feedback forms. How did you like the appointment? How did you like the doctor? Were you greeted at the door? That's all an extroverted activity. Introverts don't care about that. You know, we don't. I, don't. I don't want you to greet me at the door. I don't want you to, I, I just, I, I don't. Um, but you know, some MBA somewhere has convinced the world that to be extroverted, to be assertive, is somehow the better way to be in the world. Now, like when I was at Harvard, I had to learn some extroverted characteristics because I would have been eaten alive if I didn't. So I was glad that there were extroverts to teach me how to be a little bit more assertive so that I could survive in that environment. But it is the introverts that teaches the world how to pray. And introverts, the poets, the writers, the, the painters, you know, the vast majority of them are introverted. And I think having lost that connection to introversion, to uh, passive receptivity as an actually a good thing, we lose a great deal of um, virtue. We, we lose access to it. So. Okay, uh, let's just close with John's prayer of peace. You want to do that? So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O oh, blessed Jesus, give me stillness of soul in you. Let your mighty calmness reign in me. Rule me, O oh, King of gentleness, King of peace. Amen. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you. The next talk we have is uh, St. Francis de Sales next Friday night with Dr. Kevin Ferdinand. Thank you everyone for coming.